2019 and Style Weekly's Richmonder of the Year in 2020. Dr. Abula's work has been covered extensively in state and national media, including by the New York Times, NPR, and the PBS NewsHour. He can be found on the TED circuit with his TEDx talk, Dependence Isn't a Dirty Word. We will hear this evening first from Dr. Avula, and then Dr. Crystal Hoyt, Professor of Leadership Studies and Psychology, will join him on stage for a moderated question and answer session. Please join me in wor wel warmly welcoming Dr. Danny Avula. Thank you, Dean Peart, and good evening, friends. Um, I will invite you to imagine me a little taller as well. <laughs> uh, that's something I've always wrestled with. But I really appreciate you being here tonight because I know uh, there's a lot of options, a lot of compelling options in the city right now. Uh, our friend Mayor Stoney is giving his final State of the City address over at the Science Museum just down the road here. Um, and what, it's 7.05, so uh, Wheel of Fortune, which is probably, my, my dad is probably at home eating marshmallows and watching Wheel of Fortune. Uh, I, it, that's on me though, because he lives 10 minutes from here and I, I forgot to tell him that I was doing that tonight. So, um, but I want to take us back to January of 2020, just for a minute. I know that none of us ever actually wants to go back there, uh, but bear with me. I was in the middle of, uh, sorry, we were in the middle of January and I was having breakfast with uh, some good friends of mine who uh, it had become a monthly tradition for us to gather and, and have breakfast together. And the news of the week was all about this strange cluster of respiratory disease in China uh, and the seemingly extreme efforts being taken to contain the virus. Stories of screening in the airports or cases popping up in four different Asian countries uh, or rumblings of countries that were actually considering closing their borders. Inevitably, one of the guys poses the question, is this gonna be a big deal? And immediately I, as the resident public health expert, and another physician friend who I'll call Henry to protect the innocent, uh, said, no, 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 it's, it's just gonna be a bad flu outbreak. It might be uh, a little more severe, but it should eventually resolve. Uh, now, before you all take away my public health expert card, uh, I think it's important context to know that in recent public health history, uh, we experienced two very similar outbreaks, right? So back in 2002, um, SARS was a mutated coronavirus, sound familiar, from China, uh, and over the course of six months after emerging in China, it caused about 8,000 illnesses and almost 800 deaths. Uh, it spread a, a, a good bit. It was found in 29 different countries, but pretty quickly after that, it was contained and it disappeared. Fast forward to 2012, uh, where there was yet another coronavirus mutant called MERS-CoV. You may remember the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which erupted in Saudi Arabia. And this outbreak caused about 2,500 illnesses uh, and a little over 800 deaths. But after several months, it too was contained and eventually faded away. So both of these respiratory virus outbreaks, severe in their own ways, and certainly credible public health threats at the time, but in both cases, appropriate public health interventions to identify cases, to isolate them, and to treat them, ultimately suppress these outbreaks. All that said, we were wrong about this one. And not just wrong, but like the most wrong you could ever be about anything ever. Uh, and what made it sting all the more was that in that mid-January conversation, after two highly educated physicians with multiple degrees, residencies at top-notch institutions, after we weighed in with our, it'll just be a bad flu diagnosis, it was the friggin' investment guy who was like, I don't know, gentlemen, the markets are doing really weird things right now. I think this one's for real. <laughs> now, he doesn't actually talk like this, but when I recount that, I just want to punch his smug little face because I promise you uh, that I will never hear the end of it, right? We will be 90 years old playing backgammon or whatever 90-year-olds do, and, he, and Matt will say, remember that time. <laughs> so let's fast forward a few weeks to the point where the pandemic really got much more real for me. It was a Wednesday night in early March, uh, a little after 9 p.m., and I got a call from a nursing home administrator. It wasn't just the administrator, but it was the, the, the nursing home senior leadership team. And there was a seriousness and an urgency 
to their tone that telegraphed that this was going to be unlike any call that I had taken up to this point in the pandemic. They had just received news of their first confirmed COVID case. Uh, it was a resident of theirs who was currently hospitalized, had gotten a confirmed diagnosis, and they had several other residents who were actually showing active symptoms in the facility. And this was really frightening because all of us were watching what was happening across the country at the Life Care Center in Kirkland, Washington, which at the time was the first nursing home outbreak in the country. Um, and they had been trying to manage this outbreak that had already in just three weeks taken the lives of 16 of their residents. And so every nursing home administrator in the country was just on high alert, hoping and praying that the virus would not enter their facility, trying desperately to access tests and personal protective equipment to protect their residents and their staff, but there just wasn't enough to go around. Uh, the next day, our staff were on site and they were walking through isolation protocols. They were delivering personal protective equipment. They were training the nursing, nursing home staff how to don and doff that personal protective equipment. We created hot and cold zones and observed the staff practice. And it was all hands on deck to try to contain the virus. I imagine some of you are wondering why the nursing homes didn't already, you know, have some of these protocols in place. And I would say that actually most facilities were really well versed in how to identify a flu outbreak or a norovirus outbreak. But remember that COVID was different, particularly in the early days. One, there was limited access to testing. And so differentiating COVID from any one of the number of respiratory viruses that were circulating was really difficult. Two, COVID was really unique in its ability to be transmitted prior to an individual showing symptoms. So in congregate care settings, like a nursing home, uh, you, could, you could have spread even before knowing that somebody had it, right? So think about like the physical therapist or a dietary worker whose job requires them to travel from room to room to room. They're feeling fine, they're doing their job, they're interacting with every resident, and then two days later they come down with a respiratory illness. And who knows how many people they potentially exposed? 10, 50, 200? So the days and weeks that followed were really harrowing for all of us. We focused on testing sites that had active outbreaks and every single day uh, we were turning up new cases. Um, for a subset of those cases, within days, they would develop symptoms that were severe enough uh, that they needed to be hospitalized. And sadly, many of those hospitalized residents of assisted living facilities and nursing homes passed away. At this one facility alone, we lost more than 50 residents over the course of the next two months. Uh, and it became national news. This is a headline from the New York Times uh, because it was one of the deadliest outbreaks in the country at that point in the pandemic. Staff would show up every day just shell-shocked, uh, wondering which one of their residents were they gonna lose today. Uh, they were heartbroken from being surrounded by so much death. And they feared for their own health and safety uh, and that of their loved ones that they were going home to every day, not knowing if they were actually potentially exposing this deadly disease to their family members day in, day out. And as you can imagine, this was an unthinkable trauma, one that was being repeated around the nation and around the world. Trauma for the staff, trauma for the residents, and for their families who felt so disconnected and helpless and unable to do anything for their loved ones. So it's no wonder that in the midst of all of that trauma, we had to take some pretty severe measures as a country. In the unknown of exactly how the disease was transmitted, we had to create protocols for cleaning our groceries as we brought them into the house. You all may remember Sanjay Gupta, the medical response, uh, correspondent for CNN, doing a tutorial video on how to wipe down your groceries before you put them in the refrigerator. When we identified a case in a workplace setting, we would shut down the office for at least 48 hours, and we would bring a contractor in to do a deep clean of that space before letting anyone back in it. And we engaged in the practice of social distancing. In the context of nursing homes, remember that we had to stop in-person visitation. And so many, like interactions like these through the window that you see here, uh, these were the final memories of many congregate care residents had with their loved ones, which was really hard, despite how happy that woman looked through the window there. And as a father of five, I can tell you that this was one of the most challenging examples of how the social distance that the pandemic forced upon us uh, impacted our families. You know, there are kids that are still reeling years after the effects of that. 
So for the better part of two years, this was our reality. Extreme measures that we took to protect ourselves from this deadly disease. And as the pandemic wore on, the physical separation that we all familiarize as social distance began to give way to the recognition of a different kind of epidemic, perhaps one that existed long prior to the COVID pandemic, the epidemic of actual social distance. I find it super interesting that the term social distance actually emerged historically uh, as a way to talk about the way that people relate to one another in the context of community. University of Chicago English scholar Lily Skirlis published an article where she traces the fascinating etymology of this term, social distance. There are earlier instances of the term used in reference to individual relationships, but the phrase social distance shows up in the 1800s in reference to racial dynamics. She writes, in the 19th century United States, social distance was a palatable way for whites to describe how to continue practices of white supremacy after abolition. The term softness glossed over the realities of slavery, as well as the challenges that formerly enslaved people faced in making a livelihood. A pro-secession article appeared right here in the Richmond Inquirer in 1856, describes the anxiety of poor working whites who might soon be competing with formerly enslaved farmers, while the rich owning the lands might keep the Negroes at a greater social distance. In the 1920s, sociologist Emery Bogardus at the University of Southern California developed something called the social distance scale, which was an attempt to objectively measure prejudice by assigning numerical values to people's willingness to participate in social contacts of varying degrees of closeness with members of various racial and ethnic groups. And then in the 1990s, it crossed over into the public health lexicon for the first time related to the AIDS epidemic. In that context, social distance became not just a phrase to describe the phenomenon of stigmatization, but also the description of actual physical distance that the general public began to keep from gay men. Social distance that described the refusal to share cutlery or shake hands with those who the public perceived as a risk of infection in what they believed would be a measure of their own protection. And so this concept of social distancing, which we all know and practiced in COVID as this important life-saving public health strategy actually has its roots in race and class and geographical prejudices. And in this weird ironic twist, the practice of social distancing, physical isolation, along with a healthy dose of increasingly polarizing news media and social media consumption, draws us back to the original meaning of the term, race and class and geographic prejudices that serve to further divide us. Now, conventional wisdom on all sides of the coin say that we are an increasingly polarized society. And I think uh, that there maybe is something deeper than polarization, something more complex happening in our communities uh, than a simple term like polarization can describe. There's also this very human impulse towards tribalism, some of which is hardwired. There was this fascinating experiment that was conducted back in the 1950s where 22 Boy Scouts were separated into two groups. Uh, and they were on a camping trip, a two-week camping trip, one at one end of the park at Robbers Cave State Park in Oklahoma, one at the other end. They didn't know about each other until a week into the experiment. Uh, and so as they learned about this new group of other boys sharing their space, uh, what happened next was really curious. They developed this irrational contempt for one another. The boys in the other group were seen not just as rivals, but as fundamentally flawed human beings. And only when the two groups were asked to work together to solve a common problem on the campground did they just start to warm up to one another. But I would say that it's even more than just polarization. It's more than just tribalism. Uh, the Harwood Institute for Public Innovation, a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization that's devoted to bridging divides in communities across the country, uh, released a report uh, that, that really gets at what is driving division in American communities. And it's called Civic Virus, interestingly enough. And ultimately, it's a really hopeful report. Um, but their conclusions honed in on our very human experiences. Polarization is often thought of as the public dividing into neatly defined major groups that are in direct opposition to each other on public policy, ideology, and partisanship, says Harwood. 
But what's actually happening to individuals can't entirely be described as this, right? At the ground floor, Harwood and the researchers found that people are separating and segregating themselves from one another due to unrelenting fear and anxiety about what's happening around them and to them. Divisions in the country are intrinsically about social and psychological conditions, such as fear and anxiety, a lack of empathy and belonging, than they are about ideological polarization. These conditions are triggering in people a fight-or-flight response. So what the Harwood Report concludes to be healing, and what I have found in my own work and my own life, is that it is truly in the place of community, not necessarily with just volunteerism or strategies from the outside, but rather embedded in local communities through efforts to access uh, that which makes a community unique, the wisdom and the lived experience, and respecting those things across differences. It is in this place that powerful things can happen. And it was certainly the power of local communities that were the engine of many of our successes during the pandemic. The outputs of fear and anxiety and tribalism and polarization were on vivid display as the pandemic wore on, and perhaps at no time greater uh, than when the COVID vaccine finally became available. Uh, I had a really interesting vantage point as the state's COVID vaccine coordinator and unexpectedly as the uh, literal face of the Virginia's vaccine response. Uh, was not thinking that that's what I was signing up for, but this was weekly press conferences with the governor and almost daily media engagements around the state. Um, and at some point, my kids snarkily sent me this, um, a selfie of them in front of me on the TV, kind of poking fun at the fact that uh, someday, some, some stretches of weeks, they would see me more on TV than they would actually in person. Um, in the early phase of the response, there was this frenzy of getting limited vaccine to the hundreds of thousands of people who really wanted it. Uh, but by May or so of 2021, as the supply became more plentiful, the strategy shifted from getting the vaccine to where demand was high to creating demand where the need was high. And it was an interesting challenge because different communities had very different reasons to distrust what we as the government were selling. For example, uh, one of the persistent public health challenges that we faced long before COVID was the fact that black communities get vaccinated at much lower rates than white communities. And this is born out of a very understandable distrust of governmental institutions after centuries of abusive and unethical treatment. The best known example of these are the Tuskegee experiments. Um, these are a series of experiments that took place over four decades, 1932 to 1972, where the United States Public Health Service, so governmental entity precursor to the CDC, uh, examined 400 men who had syphilis. And the doctors, the public health service docs, actually lied to the men about the nature of their treatment, about the nature of their study, about the nature of the testing they were doing. And at one point, one of them actually got suspicious and tried to go somewhere else to get treatment, and the public health service stopped him from doing that. The researchers were well aware of the serious long-term consequences of untreated syphilis, but they did not stop the experiments. Even after they found uh, the, that penicillin in the 1940s, they found that penicillin was a quick, safe, and easy treatment. They did not stop their experiments. Uh, in the 1950s, when new research ethic protocols were promoted, they did not stop their experiments. And then in the 1960s, when our entire country was facing this racial reckoning uh, during the civil rights movement, they did not stop their experiments. It was not until 1972 when a whistleblower leaked information to the media that the experiments finally came to an end. Here in Richmond, in April of 1994, a construction project on the MCV campus uncovered an abandoned well on East Marshall Street. In the well, construction workers discovered mounds of earth that were littered with human remains. Later, these bones were confirmed to be the remains of 53 different individuals of African descent from the 1800s a time when medical schools participated in the reprehensible practice of procuring bodies illegally for dissection and for surgical experimentation. They would do this from unsavory brokers who were grave robbers. Sometimes the faculty would actually participate in the grave robbing themselves. And here in Richmond, the African-American burial grounds were prime targets for this activity. And then when the work was done, when the cadavers and the specimens were no longer useful for educational purposes, 
they were callously discarded into a nearby well. Now, over the last decade, VCU has made really significant efforts to acknowledge these wrongs, to restore honor and dignity to those who were denied it. But the fact remains that these things happened, and these examples of violence that live in the memories of black people contribute to a justified lack of trust in the medical system. So that history, paired with the current reality where African Americans were suffering disproportionately from COVID, meant that as an agency with this kind of legacy, us as a public health institution, we were wholly dependent on the strength and the creativity of local communities to combat the virus. One fantastic example of this was Faith and Facts Fridays. Uh, this was run by my friend and colleague, Dr. Rob Wynn, who's the director over at the Massey Cancer Center. Um, he got to town right before the pandemic broke, and one of the things that he did was create a network of African-American pastors, uh, really originally with the intent to promote cancer prevention activities and things like that. Uh, but quickly, COVID became the topic of the day. And so this group would meet virtually every week, and Rob would bring his contacts, local, state, and national experts, to talk about what was happening as we discovered more about the virus, what was happening in the development of the vaccine. Uh, they would do presentations, they would engage in conversations. The, the pastors had an opportunity to ask questions and to learn what was happening. And over time, built really deep, trusted relationships with this large group of pastors. There were points where we would have 250 pastors on that, on that call. Um, and these are pastors, as you probably know, that have tremendous influence over their congregations. And they became our greatest ambassadors. They were the first to volunteer to get vaccinated on camera, or the first to volunteer their churches as place, places for vaccination uh, sites, vaccination events. And so the sum total of all of those uh, actions really led to a remarkable success here in Virginia, where uh, we vaccinated a lot of the black community. And at the time that I stepped down from my post, the, the black community age 50 and up actually had a 2% higher vaccination rate than the white, their white counterparts, which just never happens. It's unheard of. We experienced a different polarity in far southwest Virginia and other rural communities across the state. You know, here we saw distrust of the government that was in part fueled by uh, kind of the anti-state sentiments that are becoming stronger in rural America. Uh, but more so by the experience of government's complicit role in the opioid epidemic, right? Opioids have ravaged these communities for more than 25 years, starting back in the 90s when uh, pharmaceutical reps would come and push OxyContin and uh, physicians participated by over-prescribing OxyContin. And, and subsequently, the devastation of rural communities in Appalachia, you know, now they're seen as a prime example of where the government rubber-stamped the efforts of Big Pharma. And so in 2021, when the government shows up uh, with Pfizer and Moderna and a promise that this is the thing that's going to save the human race, it's no wonder they resisted vaccination so emphatically. Now, we were not as successful in communities like, like this as we were in more urban communities, but we did a lot of things right. We listened well. We validated their concerns. We were non-judgmental in our approach. We were careful about our language. We would talk about protecting your family as opposed to concepts like protecting your community that were less popular. Or we would not talk about big pharma. We tried to leverage trusted voices like pastors and musicians and farmers. And as a result, we had higher uptake in those communities than we predicted. And all told, the collective of those efforts actually resulted in Virginia catapulting from 50th out of 50 states in the country to the top 10 most vaccinated state in the nation by the end of 2021. And in both of these examples, we had to contend with the realities of fractured and polarized and socially distanced Virginia. Community members were experiencing heightened fear and anxiety, and we had to rely on the healing potential of community, things that I've learned over the course of my career in public health and my life living and working in community. Things like the importance of building trust, or understanding our interconnectedness, or bringing people together across dividing lines. These have been powerful themes in my life and have, formed significant, and have been formed significantly uh, by my personal journey in community. And so for me, that journey starts here. This is, uh, a, I know it looks like a sixth grade slumber party, but these are actually adult human beings. These are my roommates from the University of Virginia who were phenomenal, fun-loving guys. Uh, who after three years of living together really came to love each other deeply and, and reach a depth of friendship that I, I think young men in particular uh, don't often get to. 
um, college was a time of really incredible growth and maturation for us. Uh, here we are throwing axes at one another. Um, it was also a time of, of, of waking up to the realities of race and class issues in America. You know, most of us had grown up in predominantly white, predominantly upper class communities. Uh, I had largely been sheltered from understanding the ways that race and class played out in society. Uh, but that started to change here at UVA. You know, at the time, the student body was about 90%, uh, sorry, 10% African-American. Um, and so you started to see social patterns play out uh, in ways that I just hadn't been exposed to. Uh, when I went into the dining hall, there was a huge section of the dining hall uh, where black students congregated. Uh, there was a section of housing on grounds where black upperclassmen um, would actually self-select and, and became an important source of community for them. And there was a bus stop in the middle of grounds that was like the social hub for the black community and everybody called it the black bus stop. Like it was just what it was known as. And it, you know, we didn't even think twice about the terminology. And we saw these divisions evident in the faith community as well, which raised real questions for me. Uh, why is this happening? Why at the turn of the 21st century are we still seeing these patterns play out, right? I would have expected that in the 1950s or 1960s, uh, but not today. What part do we play in this? And, and how do we help solve it? And so this group of friends began to explore how a different model of community could be practiced at UVA. Ultimately, we began to learn from an intentionally integrated community in Jackson, Mississippi, led by Dr. John Perkins, who was a pastor and a civil rights leader and a contemporary of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, in Jackson, Dr. Perkins was cultivating a community of people, black and white, who are really trying to live this out by being present in economically depleted communities and by giving back their own resources as a form of repair and restoration. Now, these realities of race and relationship and learning how to be a community essentially shaped my coming of age, my spiritual, my intellectual maturation, my social awareness, and my sense of justice. And that was a large part of my experience in college. And leaving it was really difficult. Uh, my roommates went on to pursue different paths all over the globe, and after a few years, we began to long for that connection that we shared in, in, in Charlottesville. And over time, a conversation started to build that ultimately led to four of these roommates and their spouses moving into a predominantly low-income African-American neighborhood here in Richmond 20 years ago. That is in and of itself a story that we don't have time to get into today, but this is a picture of what life has looked like for our family. Oh, sorry. There is a picture of what life has looked like for our family. Um, meals around tables with people who have come from very different places and have become dear friends. In my time as public health director and now as commissioner of social services, uh, making the choice to be a part of a community like this that's formed across differences has changed my life in so many different ways. Living this way has given me a better understanding of the challenges that my neighbors face and how I've contributed to those challenges. I've tried to walk alongside them as they navigate insanely complex eligibility processes for various services, SNAP or Medicaid, for example. Processes that I, as a government official in those systems, can't figure out, and ironically, I'm now responsible for them. I've experienced the deeply entrenched systemic challenges of our public schools because these are the schools that my kids go to and the school communities that we are a part of. And I feel the sting and the grief when one of my neighbors has to move out because they can't afford the rent anymore. And I realize that I, as someone with e who's economically stable and has the means to buy and renovate a house, contribute to the gentrification of my community. Not everything about this life is easy and the issues particularly around displacement are really challenging. Uh, but for so many reasons, I wouldn't trade it for the world. Our family is fundamentally different because of where we live, literally. These are our five children. Arjanae in the center is adopted and came to us through a series of events that could only happen because we lived in community together. This is us celebrating her gotcha day a few years ago. Um, and her presence in our life has just fundamentally changed the way that we see the world. Uh, you know, I, as a father to a black daughter, am learning to navigate uh, life through, through her lens. And that's an exercise that's always going to be incomplete because of who I am and where I come from. But it is one that helps me understand society differently. The younger kids have grown up with an older black sister, which has given them a lens on the world that they just couldn't have otherwise. 
And I want to share with you one of the proudest moments of being a father. Uh, this is Arjanae about two years ago walking across the stage at her community college graduation. Uh, the journey to community college and, and to finish community college was a complicated one. Arjanae had not really ever been uh, in situations where she learned how to study. Uh, she ended up having to drop out three different times from community college, but she was just persistent and resilient and went back each time. And so this day, when she got up and walked across that stage, uh, was marked by an eruption of crowd in, in the audience. And so much so that the president of the college had her turn and, and see the crowd and take it in. This was a picture that was actually on the front page of the, the Charlottesville newspaper. Um, and what was really unique about that group of, of 50 people uh, is, is that these were people from all walks of her life. These were her adopted family, her biological family, former teachers, former social workers, this incredible tapestry that only Arjuna could pull together with her winsomeness and her intention. Then it was the picture of the kind of community that I'm talking about, pulled together across dividing lines, understanding our interconnectedness. And there's one th more thing that I want to point out about this. Uh, about 15 of the members of that 50-person village that just exploded in the stands were Arjuna's younger siblings and cousins. And for so those kids to watch their big sister do this thing that they just never thought was possible, that's the stuff that changes lives. So where does this leave us? Where does all this commentary on life and community mean practically for the people in this room? I'm going to offer three prescriptions for how we can delve more deeply into meaningful, authentic community and counteract the tribalism and the polarization that our media and politics are stoking us towards. First, we need to take a real hard look at our consumption of media. The news media has found its meal ticket, and it's to divide and conquer. Americans have access to an unbelievable number of news sources. And the competition for audience has changed the way that news, and particularly political news, is produced and consumed. Cable news is a business that runs on ads. And if they're going to win viewers, they've got to be really engaging. And so the line between information and entertainment has gotten blurrier and blurrier. Fox News has established itself as the most watched cable news network in the country by airing less actual news and more opinions about the news. And to compete, MSNBC has positioned itself to be the left-leaning counter, and they're using many of the same tactics. And you could argue that social media is even worse. Maria Ressa, who is a Filipino journalist and the winner of the 2021 Nobel Prize, said this in her acceptance speech. Lies laced with anger and hate spread faster and further than facts. Social media companies control our global information ecosystem, and they are biased against facts. They are, by design, dividing us and radicalizing us. And so we need to be eyes wide open about what the media is doing to us, and we need to make conscious and intentional choices to resist that and to consume differently. Second, I know that uh, packing up and moving into a different neighborhood isn't really practical or feasible for, for many of you. And I didn't share that story in any way to be directive, although I will reiterate that it has been the most important experience of my life and has helped me build muscles for tolerating difference and learning empathy. That said, I think there are ways that we can curate our lives so that we have generous intersections with people who are different than us. Uh, I'll say it even more strongly. I actually think it's critical to the survival of our nation that we continue to engage in spaces where we encounter folks who are different from us. Classrooms, parks, libraries, coffee shops, and ideally, like those Boy Scouts at Robber's Cave, we also need to build things together, to solve problems together, to work together on things like creating art, or cleaning streets, or building physical structures like a house, but also building societal structures that acknowledge and value our shared humanity. And third, as we encounter others who are different from us, who live and believe and, 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 believe and behave in ways that we don't, and that we sometimes don't even understand, our ability to cultivate meaningful and authentic community will only go as far as our commitment to empathy and curiosity before judgment. Empathy and curiosity, engaging with others 
with these values as postures. Like these are skills that we've got to be committed to if we want to see a positive change in the world. We can cultivate these skills by exposing ourselves to difference and by practicing active listening. And in these conversations, we need to enter and offer safe spaces where we can engage conversations with generous, open perspectives. We've got to come to the table with a desire not to convince somebody of our viewpoint, but a desire to understand theirs. And lastly, we must focus on what our shared purposes and aspirations are. A line out of the Harwood Report says this, there's an urgent need in the country for people to rediscover what they are for and not simply what they are against, and for them to identify where enough agreement exists to move forward together. One of my favorite theologians, Henry Nouwen, who's a Catholic teacher, activist, pastor, uh, has a famous quote about true community. And it says that community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. Sounds pretty bleak, but the full quote actually gets a little worse. The full quote says this, community is the place where the person you least want to live with always lives. That person is always in your community somewhere, and in the eyes of others, you might be that person. <laughs> I do think this is actually quite hopeful, though, because it taps into something that many of us know at our deepest level, that hope is not found in building coalitions of sameness. There's something sacred about encountering the humanity of the other that allows us to tap into the universal reality that our thriving is bound up in the thriving of all others, even the person we least want to be around, even the person who least wants to be around us. It's as, Bishop, it's, as, it's as Bishop Desmond Tutu famously wrote, so beautifully illustrating the South African concept of Ubuntu. Ubuntu is the essence of being human. It speaks of how my humanity is caught up and bound up inextricably with yours. It says, not as Descartes did, I think, therefore I am, but rather I am because I belong. We are created for a delicate network of relationships, of interdependence, with our fellow human beings. In other words, community, when understood and built and respected as the place where our common humanity, with all of its intended difficulties and conflicts, and with all the rewards that we gain when we em empathetically embrace this diversity, this diverse community makes us more human. Thank you. That was so good. Can you all hear me? How, how, how does this sound? Sound okay? All right, got a thumbs up, great. Um, just uh, My name is Crystal Hoyt. I'm a professor of leadership studies and psychology here. And I enjoyed that talk so much, and let me share a little bit why. Um, I'm a social psychologist. One thing we do as social psychologists is, and one thing I do, is study um, prejudice mm. and um, lots of questions around prejudice. A part of your talk, I felt like I was at a conference, at a, one of my social psychology conferences I'm going to, and you start talking about the robber's cave experiment. That's mm -hmm. classic work in our discipline, right, of social psychology. And that's classic work, to, to go in a little bit more, that's related to what I was resonating so much with what you said here, um, which is talking about the importance of contact. We in the social psychology have been studying prejudice for many years. Long time ago, 1954, Gordon Alport came up with this theory, the contact, contact theory. That's the one theory that has the most support mm -hmm. out of all of the work that we, the work I've been doing, the work we've been doing for years. It, contact, real genuine contact with others is what brings down prejudice. And, and y the way, and actually, interestingly, the first couple of um, uh, years looking into it, they had a number of, a number of well, you need contact, but you need certain conditions. Like there needs to be equal status, which can be difficult. There mm -hmm. needs to be a few other things. Research shows actually you don't need a lot of those things. What you need, the, one of the most important things you need that original, the original work didn't highlight was relationships. Mm -hmm. And that's, and friendships and specifically. And that, and you so eloquently and for me beautifully talked about the importance of your own friendships and the friendships. Um, and so, so I just want, you know, these are reasons why it resonates and what you say to me is so genuinely true that, you know, you brought to life 
so much of what I, I, I read about and I, and I think about and I care about. Um, and so in these line, you know, in this kind of line of thinking about the importance of, of contact and contact across distance, um, um, you know, one thing that's really important, of course, is is we're a society where there are power dynamics. Power dynamics are endemic. You talked, you touched on that, of course, throughout the entire talk. Um, and power dynamics and hierarchies can bring about challenges in creating communities. Um, can you speak a little bit? A little bit more. I know it was, uh, you know, spoke a bit to it, but a little bit more to that idea of power dynamics and really in creating friendships, relationships, and communities. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'll give I'll give an example that sort of brings this to life. Um, when we, in the early days of us living in the East End and of engaging our local elementary school. Uh, my wife taught at that elementary school, and we knew that our kids were going to go. It's a Shimbrazo Elementary for anybody who knows it. Um, and in that er early engagement, our approach was uh, we want to be here. We want to advocate for our kids because we know that's a way that we will advocate for all kids. Um, and so we pushed really hard to bring the International Baccalaureate Program to Shimbrazo the IB program. Um, and we busted our tails. We raised lots of money. We did the advocacy work with city council. We got a line item in the budget. Uh, we got the leadership of the school to get on board. Uh, and, and we launched. And the launch was amazing and was energizing. Um, but it was a very select group of parents who even like knew or cared what IB was. We had not done the work to educate and to build trust and to you know expose people to like why this might actually make a difference for their kids uh and so it flopped and you know even today there's like an ib program kind of in name only hopefully no one's out connected to shabrazo telling them about this but like they they know it too i mean i i think that um it's a it's a really good example of where like our power and our privilege we're able to make a thing happen but we missed the boat entirely because we didn't share that with the residents who we thought would benefit from it. And so um, I think it's like one example of when power is not shared, when listening is not done, uh, that your efforts actually are, are done in vain. What a powerful example of the importance of sharing power and just being cognizant, of, yeah, trying to acknowledge that. That's, that was a um, really powerful example. I'm gonna ask another question. I could literally talk all night and would love to, but that's not what I'm here for. So I'm, I'm also going to open it up to questions. I'm gonna ask one more, so we will open it up um, to the floor after this. Um, so actually the next question I wanna ask, I was thinking about, we had asked for folks had questions before you came here to submit questions. So I got a few of these questions and there was a theme and you're probably gonna know maybe what this theme was. Many questions in some way related to, like give me some strategies, give me some approaches to fostering connection. And you know, so as, as I talked about one thing um, in, in my area of research of social psychology, trying to bring people, especially across racial and ethnic differences together, one thing we see in the research is people actually really want to get to meet and become friends with, meet, know, and become friends with, develop relationships with people who are different than them, particularly across race and ethnicity. They want to, but they don't know how or just like, it's awkward, what do I do? Just come up and say, hi, I wanna be your friend. You know, like there, there, there's a little bit of just not knowing um, how to go about it. And also, interestingly, people oftentimes think others don't want to get to know them, to develop community with them. That like, I'm interested, but others don't really want that. That's not the case, because we're all actually kind of interested. So when I'm talking about there's this kind of idea of pluralistic ignorance. Like I think I'd like to develop relationships, community, belonging, mm -hmm. but like others don't want it. Uh, and people who are quite different than me, they don't really want it. That is not true. So, um, so I guess I, I, I kind of want to have kind of a broad question there. One is, is, have you thought, have you thought about that of maybe ways of kind of making it disabusing people or like, you know, like that others don't really want to develop these relationships in this community because people really do. And or I'll say, or like thought about, you gave some great examples and I, of, of you know prescriptions of what we can do 
but even you know any other more more um, ideas of kind of literally you know what what script we can maybe use to really start developing mm. these relationships because it really that's just so important. Yeah. Anyway, I'll let it, you take that yeah. any way you want. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, where I would start is that it really just takes enormous intentionality and commitment because like the natural rhythm of our lives does not foster this, right? The schools we go to, the way our neighborhoods are segregated, the uh, grocery stores that we shop at, you know, like we're not having those kinds of intersections by and large. Um, and so it does take some intentional decisions to like go to a place where you might be uncomfortable, show up at Brewer, uh, Brewer's Cafe is closed now, but Lyft, you know, black owned coffee shops uh, and become a regular there and get to know people there. Uh, you know, I, I think that's a, a very practical example of how you can get out of the space that you feel comfortable in yeah. uh, and put yourself in a, in a place where you have to be a little humble. Um, and so, uh, you, like, that kind of intentionality, um, you know, there are, there, there are, I mean, maybe forced ways that this is done. There are book clubs that have yeah. emerged. There are, uh, you know, affinity groups around racial justice that you can plug into. Um, but I think it's just like there needs to be intention that then results in organic uh, relationship building. And that's hard. I mean, I, I think like some of the places I said, parks, YMCAs are great for this, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. go to places where uh, there is a, a nexus of communities and, and be there. Great, great suggestions. Super great suggestions. Okay, as I promised. Let, uh, um, and I know that there are definitely going to be some questions here, so let's go ahead, and I'm going to have folks um, come around with, and I will put, oh, right over here, let's go to the, in the front row. Yes, thank you. Um, hello, my name is Bree. My pronouns are they, them, just uh, in case anyone starts talking about me, I guess. Um, my question is that um, as a person who works with a lot of service providers, specifically giving care to other people, how do you work with the idea of, um, I think there's something in US hyper-individualism where we forget that even though we are our own individuals, the context of our interactions and relationships with each other, talk about interactions like, God, I had this all prepared before I picked up the mic. Um, but something that I noticed, especially with uh, like service providers, um, when they're trying to serve marginalized communities is they want to move past harm, is that they're so uncomfortable with conflict that they don't want to even name it to be able to be like, you can trust me, we're better now, we're not even associated with the, because mm. you mentioned earlier of how the medical industrial complex has actively harmed marginalized communities. Yeah. Of course there's a level of distrust. Yeah. Um, but uh, in order to build those relationships, those communities won't ignore that harm done. Um, and so service providers, I'm still finding, are struggling with like, well, how do we connect with them so we can give them the resources that we have? How would you, I guess, navigate um, talking to service providers about that relationship building while acknowledging harm done, how to move through it, and how to move through the acknowledgement also that harm will continue to be done as, because we're human and we make mistakes, um, but you are, like, especially service providers, you're representative of a system or an organization. It's not about you, it's about the context of like this interaction you're having. Yeah, I think that uh, that like for the service provider end, education is super important, right? Like every one of these organizations needs to engage their staff in a process of discovery and like learning about history and understanding, you know, why these uh, resistances or, or hesitancies exist, um, and and revisiting them, you know. And, and so I think in the context of organizational dynamics. We just have to make it a priority. Leaders of organizations have to make it a priority to say, uh, we're gonna talk about these things, we're gonna learn about how to engage our clients in these conversations, um, and we're, and we're gonna uh, you know, come with humility, acknowledging that like, they may be angry about the fact that I'm in their house for good reason. Um, and so I, I do think that like, calling it out and, and recognizing that like, people need to be on a constant journey of that. Now, we can't dwell in that, and I think that's a lot of where people get stuck, is like they don't know how to move forward. And, and I think they're, they're in all of these relationships does need to be a, an assumption of positive intent, right? That like I'm here because of uh, historical and structural things that have put you in this situation, 
uh, but now we're all together trying to walk, uh, walk forward, trying to make a, a better situation of it. So it's not a complete answer, it's a super messy answer, but I do think the intentionality in, in educating, training, uh, as organizational leaders, making sure that uh, that is a part of the conversation that our service providers engage in, I think it's pretty crucial to, to equip them for the challenges that you're raising. So why don't we go ahead and go right here in the middle. Thanks, Dr. Abula. That was a great speech. Um, when you oversaw the COVID uh, response in Virginia, uh, you came in as a doctor, and then you moved to a government worker, and then all of a sudden you find yourself a politician. And people... <laughs> That happened, I'm sure, to you, but also to your national counterpart and unleashed all kinds of responses that I don't think any of y'all could have foreseen when you were in your lab coats. Mm -hmm. um, and then also, what also uh, emerged was an anti-science, mm -hmm. pretty strong sentiment from, again, I don't believe that could have been predicted quite the same way. How did... Did those surprise you, or were you prescient, just like you were about COVID? <laughs> um, and how did you respond? How did it affect you personally, yeah. and maybe even professionally in your response to it? Um, by my national counterpart, I'm, I'm guessing you mean Dr. Fauci. Uh, <laughs> um, interestingly, a quick aside, uh, one of the funny things that emerged, that there were lots of you know, local Fauci comparisons, which is cute. Um, but my team started calling me Brown Fauci, uh, which, which got contracted to Dr. Brouchy, um, which is really exciting. And I also, I'll, I'll tell this one other story real quick. I, um, I was in a library and had uh, walked out to my car and this lady from across the parking lot was like trying to wave me down. Uh, and I get it and, and I, I roll down the window and she points to the top of my car. Uh, and it, I'd left my coffee mug on the car. I was like, oh, thanks so much. And so I grabbed my coffee mug, and as, she's, as she gets nearer to me, she says, you look really familiar. And I just smiled, and she said, are you Dr. Fauci? Which <laughs> 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 was amazing. And I, I, I actually had the chance to tell Dr. Fauci that story because we facilitated uh, uh, a, web, a webinar for health providers. Uh, but that is not the question you asked. The question you asked is how does this distrust in science and uh, the politicization of the role that we were playing as public health physicians, um, how did we contend with that? And, um, you know, I will say that a lot of what I talked about in our engagement of Southwest Virginia, of, uh, of acknowledging that there was a perspective and a history that they came with that formed their suppositions and, and their resistance. Um, by acknowledging that in a non-judgmental way, uh, by not making them feel bad about not getting vaccinated, um, but by trying to just stay true to the science, by trying to provide as much clear information as possible, um, it didn't always work, but I think it, there was mutual respect in that. You know, I was one of three people that was held over from the Northern administration into uh, into the Yunkin administration. And I think a part of that was that I had a lot of uh, conservative legislators who really appreciated uh, my willingness to show up and my willingness to not judge and my willingness to uh, listen well. And, and so I think that um, some of those things are, are the ways that we had to navigate it, right? I do think that the erosion of trust in science uh, is a huge problem for our country. And um, I don't know what the answers are to restore that trust, right? I think that some of those personality characteristics that, that I talked about are things that the, the uh, scientific establishment are gonna need to espouse to try to build trust over time. Um, and I think we're gonna have to be really uh, proactive about, uh, about how information is disseminated, right? I talked about the fact that um, like lies spread faster than facts. We saw that over and over and over with COVID. We were constantly on the defense against misinformation. And um, 
yeah, I mean, there, there just are going to have to be concerted efforts to raise up scientists, leaders, uh, people who can be trust builders that come from all of these different segments of communities. So we're going to go over here. Do you have a student with a question? Who I think is a student. <laughs> all right, all right. <laughs> it was a student. Yeah. So for some background, um, I'm writing my honors thesis in Jepson on leadership as a social determinant of health. Um, so can you expand upon leadership as a social determinant of health? And how community members or community leaders, whether that be a clinician, a public health expert, or just a community leader, um, can use their role as a leader to undermine um, like systems of health inequality? Hmm. First of all, I love that you're doing that, and I cannot wait to read your thesis. That's fascinating. Um, I think that, you know, where I'll start is that uh, we have thought about leadership historically like way too uh, hierarchically, right? That we, part of how we get to the kind of society and community that we all want is by recognizing that leadership exists in unexpected places, right? Um, for so many years as, as health director, uh, we were trying to do work in low-income communities, in, in public housing communities, um, and that came with some really uh, remarkable observances, that there were these passionate, phenomenal, gifted people living in public housing who could lead way better than we as the health department could, right? They had credibility. They knew what their neighbors were dealing with and how to reach them. They knew how to frame in, uh, messages and communicate. And so I think a, a huge part of our work over time was this distribution of power, was understanding that like, hey, this doc in a suit is not the right voice to try to make a thing happen in Gilpin Court, but that we really need to lift up the leaders in those communities and honor their lived experience, honor the expertise that they bring to the table. Um, and so I, I think it is it's that recognition and an and intentional effort to shift power into places where it hasn't always been. All right. Do we think we have time for one more question? Um, and I'm gonna go Thank you. Commissioner uh, Danny. Uh, Thank you, Jim. Jim Schuyler, and I'd like to tell you what I've been doing for the last year and a half, and uh, it's since I've retired. I think that those of us who were in the nonprofit world through COVID were mentally, physically, emotionally, socially exhausted. Mm. So calling upon us to do some of what we really need to do is a very tough thing to do right now. It may require a transition in leadership um, because other people have more energy than maybe I have right now. But when I left, um, the work I've done for the last year and a half has been in the arts. Hmm. And I think that is a major area where you could find some very fertile ground to work. Uh, and I think our community is one that has a remarkable arts variety. Uh, and I mean it all. Art, music, theater, dance, other things that people do. And I think getting people exposed to some of what's going on in those fields can lead to some of the conversations that you want to have. So that's, since yeah. I haven't seen you for the past year and a half, <laughs> I, I, I've given you everything to catch up on. <laughs> I love to hear that, Jim. I can't wait to see some of your art. I, I do think that uh, when I was a, a trustee at the Richmore Health Foundation, one of the bodies of work that we really started to invest in uh, that was you know, not traditional for a health foundation was actually investing in the arts. And it's for all the reasons that you're talking about, that the co-creation of art becomes this place where people from different walks of life can come together and work on something together, uh, can see each other's connection and humanity and, and find kind of an even playing field. And, and so I, I, I love the suggestion, and I, I think that's probably, you know, we're, we're an arts town in many ways. And so I think it's a great prescription for how we can pursue this kind of community. 
Thanks so much. Please join me in thanking Dr. Abua for his insights. I love that we ended on a hopeful note. So thank you. Um, please join us now for a reception in the lobby and uh, keep your eyes open for other programs at the Jepson School. Thank you. Thank you, Crystal. Literally.